Greetings. You stinking bin witches. How are you getting on? What's the crack? Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. If this is your first time at the Blind Boy Podcast, I appeal to you to go back to the episodes at the start. Because we're up at episode 22 now. And it's not that the episodes are sequential or anything. Um, well, they are. No, they're not sequential, but there's certain themes. There's certain themes that have developed throughout all the episodes. And this podcast is very much a journey that has developed. And it would be beneficial to go back to the start and start from there rather than go balls deep straight in at episode 22. For instance, <clears throat> I might mention Yortia Hearn. And you're like, who the fuck is Yorty Ahern? What is he talking about? Because a lot of people have been asking me about Yorty Ahern. And Yorty Ahern is... He's, he's an otter. He's the patron saint of this podcast. He's this podcast's spirit animal. And Yorty Ahern is an otter that lives in Limerick's Plassey River. And I spotted him. About two months ago. And first mentioned him on this podcast. And since that time. We've checked in with Yorty. Quite often. Now I haven't seen Yorty. In, in in a good few weeks. I haven't seen him at all. So I don't have many updates. For him. But what I can say to you. Is the area of Yorty's couch. In Plassey River. Where he lives. This weekend. Um was subject to a big clean-up by University of Limerick Environmental Society. The Yorty's couch was flooded during the winter months, and this flooding caused quite a lot of uh, plastic bottles and dirt and shit that came from upriver to go downriver and distribute itself along the shoreline. So loads and loads of volunteers got together this Sunday, last Sunday, and... (coughs) I have a little bit of a tickly calf left, I'm sorry. Last Sunday, and they sorted out Yorty's couch. And it looks immaculate. They took fucking bin bags full of uh, old bottles and plastic and shit. Fucked it into a skip. So, as spring comes upon us, Yorty has got a nice clean stretch of river upon which to roll around and do otter, otter stuff. Whatever the fuck he gets up to. So I had a busy weekend, lads. I had a very busy weekend. I did three live podcasts in the Sugar Club in Dublin. And they were unbelievable. They went fantastically. It was so much crack. We had a load of people out. We had loads of... It was very engaging. Three very engaging live podcasts that I'm going to... I'll put them out incrementally. I'm not going to put them out immediately. I'll hang on to them. And I'll release them to you as I see fit. But my first guest on the Friday night was a man who played keyboards with Bob Marley uh, in the 70s called Natty Whaler, who has been living in Ireland since 2000. And Natty came along and we spoke about... We spoke about Rastafari, we spoke about Bob Marley, we spoke about all sorts and Natty played a few songs then I interviewed two academics Emer and Garodine who study um, Emer studies early Irish literature right early medieval Irish literature but specifically what she's interested in is the role of women in early Irish society before the Brits came and then Garrodine special specialises in the Irish language. And specifically what she's studying is the rights of minority languages in Ireland and how that interacts with the court system. I learned something very interesting that there's there's quite a few people in this country that speak Irish sign language and they're not really represented by either the guards or in court. So that's what Garadine is studying studying how to give these people more rights and then my last guest was Finn Dwyer 
who is a historian. He presents the Irish History Podcast. And we had a, a two-hour discussion about the Irish famine. And it was enthralling. You could have heard a pin drop for the whole thing. So, yeah, it was great crack. Really enjoyed those live podcasts. And there will be more live podcasts. Because they're a lot of fun. At, at first, I was nervous with them, you know. But now I'm getting into the swing of them. Like last week's one with Kevin Barry, you know. That was good crack. So, I was on... I was just arsing around YouTube there last week. In an otter hole. On YouTube, looking at videos of otters. Probably because I miss Yorty O'Hearn and I haven't seen him in a while. But I came across this uh, very interesting thread of videos... In in the Bronx Zoo in New York, for some mad reason, right, they have this enclosure of monkeys. I don't know what type of monkeys they are. They're small monkeys. So it's these little monkeys on an island in the zoo. And then there's a pond around them, around this island. So a couple of years ago, they decided to introduce a colony of sea otters into Monkey Island. For some reason, I don't know, that seems a bit strange to me. That you'd have monkeys and otters together, because I don't think they coexist in the wild. So there was about eight or nine otters, similar enough number of monkeys. And I start looking at loads of videos, mainly shot by tourists on their phones, of these monkeys and otters coexisting in the Bronx Zoo. And they, there was never, in any video I saw, there never appeared to be one moment of peace whatsoever. Now, otters are highly intelligent animals. Monkeys are highly intelligent animals. There was never a moment of peace. From what I could see, the monkeys would basically, they'd swing off branches or come down to the shore and spend every waking moment grabbing the otters by the tail. You know, really ganging up on them, grabbing the otters by the tail or pulling their ears or pulling the otters' legs or running up to the shore, catching an otter and then dragging him onto the land and really pissing the fucking otters off, you know. it look, it, it, Very foolish move by Bronx Sue, if you ask me, to put these two species coexisting. And it just looked like the otters were being bullied non-stop by these monkeys who from from all I can they were really acting like dickheads you know and I, I'm very compassionate towards animals but when I saw how these monkeys were treating the otters in Bronx Zoo it made me dislike monkeys because they were just being nasty bastards for the sake of it and the poor old otters were kind of putting up with it so I'd gone through about 8 videos and then finally saw this fucking insane video so anyway one of the monkeys fell into the water or whatever and the otters ganged up as soon as the, the monkey went under the water the like seven or eight otters went over and just started grabbing onto him like and screaming they were squeaking and screaming and really biting him hard. And this monkey was there in the water with like seven or eight otters all around him. And, you know, holding him down underneath the water. And all the monkeys then were on the shore. Like, with their heads on their, like their hands on their heads. Like, visibly panicking in distress. Watching their friend getting attacked by these rabid otters. And the otters weren't letting go. And they kept holding on to him and biting him. Until they killed him. They killed one monkey. They all ganged up together and and dragged this poor monkey underneath the water until he drowned and died. And the grief on the, those monkeys' faces as it was happening was phenomenal. I could feel their pain and grief and panic. But it was amazing to see that act of vicious revenge enacted by those captive otters who just simply had enough of the monkey's bullshit and it was vicious to watch you know it reminded me of there was something very human about their hatred you know it reminded me of of 
like a, a nasty online argument against a public figure. When a public figure, you know, finally falls, when something happens, when they say something out of place and then everyone just latches on with the nastiest comments they can find. That hatred was present. But it, it kind of changed my opinions about otters a bit, you know. And I started to see, when I saw that viciousness, then I started to wonder about about Yorty Arn and whether he himself would be capable of, of similar acts of um, hatred. And I doubt it because the Irish otter, those those little river otters, they're not pack animals. I mean, now, Yorty is very territorial, and if he sees another male otter, there'll be a scrap. But he doesn't hang around. There's no pack mentality with Irish otters. But sea otters, they're a different story. They're quite sadistic and vicious. They can be. Now, they're the, sea otters as well now are the very cute ones. They sleep on their backs and they hold hands with each other. And they have a little pocket in their belly and they keep their favourite rock in there. And they'll put an oyster on their belly or a clam. They smash smash it with their favourite rock and it's quite cute. But adult male sea otters have been known to catch a baby seal and forcibly rape the baby seal to death. And whether they do it deliberately or not, we don't know. But when otters mate... Uh, the male otter has a habit of, of biting down on the the, fem- the back of the female's head. And when male otters do this to baby seals, they force the seal's head under the water and basically drown it to death until the male otter climaxes, which was a bit of a strange fact that I learned. And do you know what else, who else turns out are... are absolute dickheads termites termites are, are uh, they, they like they're colonial insects right so there'll be thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands in a, in a termite colony and they're always getting into fights with ant colonies so termites and ants will have full on wars with each other large scale wars and termites, when they get into a war with ants, they grab their the oldest members of their colony, like essentially they're elderly, and they shove their elderly to the front of the battle line, and the ants kill the elderly in this battle, and it's the termites' way of kind of preserving their best soldiers, which is quite human. You know, now, and with humans, you know, if you look at, we'll say, World War One or Two, they tend to, humans tend to protect the elderly. Not protect them, but if you look at, like, Dad's army, they're the last line of defence. When the Brits were fighting the Germans in World War Two, and all, they, they put the young out first. It was the Dad's army, the, the old guard at home of elderly people who had to defend the country. But humans are, like, I learned a, here's a shitty thing I learned about the Brits recently. I was looking at the the history of, we'll say, council housing in Britain, because the Brits, in fairness to them, after World War II, introduced the welfare state, and out of that came the NHS and quite a lot of social housing. Britain after World War Two were quite socialist in their public policy, but anyway, the, the proper council housing wasn't really introduced by the British uh, until about, I think it was 1917, 1918, around then. <clears throat> it was after the First World War. Up until that point, social housing wasn't really a thing. They had a tiny attempt at it uh, to, to clear some slums in the very late industrial revolution but the first actual housing act was about 1919 and it was introduced by Lloyd George and on the surface it looks like a good thing it's it was social housing for 
lads who were re- returning from World War One. So it's like, you know, you fought for your country, here's a free gaff. Seems pretty nice on the surface. But then when I looked into it more, they did a, a the British Army did a health check on all the kind of poor working class lads that they would have sent off, they would have conscripted for World War One. It turned out that a lot of the conscripts were incredibly unhealthy and weak uh, in medical tests that they weren't really battle fit because they were malnourished their entire lives and grew up in terrible living conditions where they didn't have sanitation or proper warmth. So British troops were quite weak in general in World War I because they had grown up in industrial revolution slums. So what made the British government, Lloyd George, introduce council housing and social housing was so that the British could create better cannon fodder when it came to another world war so that they could raise uh, so that they, they could raise thousands and thir- thousands of working class people in better conditions with sanitation and warmth and shelter and access to running water and access to better food as a result but they did these things not for like these things should be done for the good of people's lives to improve the lives of a population that's what a welfare state or socialistic model is for but the you know Lloyd George didn't do that for these reasons he did it for purely imperialistic fucking reasons he wanted better cannon fodder to go and fight the Germans again and that's what happened which is so fucked up it's it's so it's such a brit thing to do isn't it it's like you think they're being sound but it's like they're not they're not being sound they're just looking at the big dirty tits on the empire and how to grease them up you know typical shit did I ever tell you about the Sykes-Picot agreement? This is a... This is some classic British imperial shit. Um, during World War One, okay? That's not the Hitler one, the one before it. During War... It was Germany where the... You know, Germany were causing it. But during World War One one of the powers that had aligned with Germany were known as the Ottoman Empire, okay? And the Ottoman Empire's territory is... It was pretty large. It's what we'd now call the Middle East, right? It had parts of North Africa. What we'd now call the Middle East was, up until about 1916, 1917, it was called the Ottoman Empire, which was controlled centrally from the, uh, Turkey, the Ottoman Turks. So they had aligned with Germany, so the Brits were fighting them. Did you ever hear of a lad called Lawrence of Arabia? Very famous individual. A mythological individual. He was real, but he's been mythologically painted as a, a white saviour. If you remember previous episodes where I spoke about tropes, this Lawrence of Arabia is, is a white saviour. So anyway, <clears throat> he led Arab tribes, you know, Arab Bedouin nomadic tribes in military revolt against the Ottoman Empire in the closing kind of years of World War One. And he did this with the promise of, look, I'm a I'm a British agent, essentially. And I'm going to, you know, unify all of ye and we're going to fight the Ottoman Empire. And when ye win, the Ottoman Empire is going to fall and you will have a unified state for all Arab peoples. The, you know, the, the, the boundaries of the Ottoman Empire will become one Arab state. Okay? That's not how it panned out, obviously. Now, the Middle East has always been... Not always, but for the past 1500 years has been in turmoil 
for a lot of reasons. Crusades caused quite a lot of shit. Um, Islam, within a hundred years, divided into Sunni and Shia, and they've been at each other's throats. But a lot of the modern conflict that we see today in the Middle East um, is because of this Sykes-Picot agreement, okay? And kind of what, what happened was, so like I said, Lawrence of Arabia led the Arab revolt, said to the lads, ye beat the, you know, ye helped me beat the Ottoman Turk, fucking Ottoman Empire, and ye get, you know, all their lands, you get a, a pan-Arab state, unity. But what happened is that the French and the British created a secret agreement in May 1916 on the sly which double-crossed the Arab revolt, right? And this is kind of how it worked. Oil was becoming, it was becoming quite clear by 1916 that oil was going to be a very serious commodity, okay? And the British and the French wanted this. So what they did in the Sykes-Picot Agreement, they carved up the Middle East, the lands that would fall when the Ottoman Empire fell. They carved up the Middle East into the countries that we now know today, the likes of Syria, Lebanon, fucking Saudi Arabia, you name it, okay? Israel. They created these countries not they didn't create them with, with any sensitivity in mind regarding the tribes and conflicts and the peoples that lived in those areas but they created the borders based purely on French and British control and needs and that's what created a lot of the shit like I said this is an area with massive conflict Sunni, Shia, Kurds fucking Jews all at each other's throats with their own predefined areas and then the Brits and the French French just went in and said fuck that this place is called Libya this place is called Saudi Arabia here are the lines here are the territories I don't give a shit if it cuts your farm in half I don't give a fuck if it creates a new conflict and that's what they did for oil so there is some uh some sneaky colonial shit. And it's not just the Brits who do that, of course. It's it's the French. But to my British listeners, and I think I've said this before, do you know, if I've got... Jesus, it's nearly 80,000 British listeners at this time, at this point, at 22 weeks into the podcast. If you're listening to me, like, the past 10 minutes and feeling that I'm Brit bashing or whatever... First of all, I'm not. I'm just actually talking about history. But secondly, I want you to be... Just to give some context why I talk like this. Number one, right? you weren't taught any of this in school. Number two, this is what's very important. Like if you hear an Irish person go off on one about the Brits. You know, I'm going to say Brits now in, in, in inverted commas. Like, I'm not talking about the British people. I've nothing against British people whatsoever. What I'm talking about is British colonialism. And British colonialism throughout history has only benefited rich British people. That's it. It only benefits the elite. And I've no problem or qualms whatsoever with ordinary British people. I'm just not a fan of the history of what your colonial rulers have done and neither should you be because you too are also a victim of that shit as evidenced there by you know when I spoke about Lloyd George's housing act um, in, the, in 1917 or 18 whenever it was you know he, he's Lloyd George is considered to be the founder of the welfare state but he did it so that he could create cannon fodder out of the fucking working class you know he, he, it was to benefit colonialism, to fight other colonial empires, to fuck over more poor people. So, ye lads are victims of that shit too. And the reason you're not taught about it in school is because 
the British education system, it needs certain people in school to still want to join the army. And if you talk about things like the Sykes-Picot Agreement or any other colonial stuff, it's not going to make people want to join the British army, is it? So just bring that one into your awareness. Irish people have no problem with British people. And Irish people who do have a problem with British people are fucking idiots. They're what you'd call cunts. You know what I'm saying? So there's... How the fuck did I end up getting... I started off with otters. Then I became disappointed to learn that sea otters are cunts. Then... Who else? I found out the termites were cunts. And then I found out that sea otters were even worse cunts than termites. And that got me talking about the Brits being cunts. Then the French being cunts. Let's move on to something more positive. I don't know. I hope in my uh, exploration of cuntiness you are still experiencing your podcast hug. Um, I'm not in my regular studio this week. I'm recording it in, in this podcast in a temporary location. There's a slight reverb, especially when I raise my voice like that. There's a slight bit of an echo. Let's talk about paint, will we? I can't give you an ocarina pause this week either, actually. Because I don't have my ocarina with me. Let's have a moment of silence. Let's have a slight moment of silence for a digital advert to be inserted. And you will either hear an advert, possibly a, a recruitment advert for the SAS or the RAF if you live in Britain. And if you don't hear an advert, you're going to hear just a little bit of uh, silence and some jazz piano. And we'll use that as a moment to reflect before I move on to the next topic on the podcast. So here we go. Oh yeah, yeah I've got a prick of a tickly cough, left over from last week's flu, and it's just, uh, it's like candy floss in my thorax, do I have a thorax, I think that's only something that in- insects have, my lungs, my trachea, I mean, not my thorax, that's a, that's a part of it, a, a part of an anatomy that's unique only to insects, I believe. Anyway, fuck adverts. This podcast is made possible because of the Patreon page. And what that is, is a few of ye lovely, sound, generous people go onto my Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. And some of ye donate me uh, a few quid every month and I cannot stress how grateful I am for the few of you that do this Um, it's really keeping me going it's fantastic, it makes this podcast a fucking joy to do so if you're enjoying the podcast and you like it and the podcast is free and it's five hours of free content a month so if you're really enjoying the podcast and you feel that you know, if you met me in real life that you would buy me a coffee or a pint once a month, 
then please feel free to contribute a few quid to the Patreon account. Um, if you're feeling generous, and if you can't afford it, you don't have to. You're going to get the exact same experience as everybody else. There's no added benefit uh, to contributing to the Patreon other than just being sound if you like what I'm doing. So if you can afford it, please do. If you can't, no hassle. You can continue to listen for free. Um, also, what I'd like you to do um, is to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or whatever app you're using. Also, rate the podcast and please do leave a review for the podcast. Please do that. These are all good things that you can do that benefit my life directly if you're enjoying your podcast hug. Thank you very much. So, a few podcasts back, I spoke about the painting of an artist called Caravaggio, who was from the 16th century, and i got to say, the response I got from that was overwhelmingly positive. So many people contacted me, you know, just saying how much they loved hearing about it and listening about me describing 16th century painting. And I, of course, then got a great, a great kick out of that because art is seen as being inaccessible. You know, a lot of people are scared of art. A lot of people get freaked out when a painting sells for 120 million quid and people are like, I don't know why that's good. And art shouldn't be inaccessible at all. Art shouldn't be highfalutin or... <coughs> considered highbrow and it is it's, it's not at all art art is if you can listen to fucking music and you can appreciate music you can appreciate painting or any other visual art form um, art is considered out of reach and inaccessible because I think money is the root of it okay art is used to to launder money. Art is used as, you know, as, as a tax write-off. Um, very wealthy people buy art for a number of reasons. People will buy art not just to, you know, to put 60 million into something that's outside of the hands of the taxman, but also to purchase taste. Um, because so much money goes into art, one of the ways that you can make it more valuable is to speak about it in, you know, very academic and inaccessible language so that the average person then, you know, it, 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 art attains a greater glow when it's spoken about as being far, far, far more important than it is. And money drives that. And like, like I said, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of rich people are just trying to buy taste. Um, but what I mean by that is... I think... Art is used... By the super wealthy, right? As a, as a way to define lines of class... Amongst wealthy people. It... An appreciation of art... Separates... Old money from new money... So if some fucking Russian oligarch comes along, who just made a couple of billion in the last ten years, but grew up in a slum, you know, he can buy all the Ferraris in the world, but he will never appreciate a Caravaggio. You know what I'm saying? Because that requires knowledge and culture and empathy and education. So I think these rich, wealthy people buy art to separate themselves. It's like, yeah, I could buy a Ferrari if I want, but I have taste. So I'm going to buy this Renoir. But art shouldn't be out of the reach of anybody, especially not painting, which is a... To be honest, it's a simple medium. It's no more complicated than music. It's no more complicated than classical music or jazz. Painting is as complex as you want it to be. 
you know um you think your favorite songs you enjoy them because you fucking enjoy them they do something to you emotionally it's the same with paintings but if you want you can analyze that song from you know you can analyze its production the musicianship all of that stuff but you don't have to and it's the exact same thing goes with painting and I like democratising that, I like democratising it and showing ye, because I've done my kind of study on it, that like you can appreciate fucking art and painting and it's enjoyable and it's for everybody. So, I spoke about Caravaggio a couple of podcasts back and my main point of the Caravaggio chat was to show how styles in painting and art throughout the, throughout the last millennium are driven by economic factors. Um, around the time of the 16th century and the 15th century colours were very fucking expensive the most expensive colour was blue that's why Holy Mary is blue and my hot take on Caravaggio is that he was trying to save money by his painting style utilises the use of inexpensive colours and sparingly uses expensive colours such as reds and blues and that's how Caravaggio's style came about and Caravaggio's style, it'd be called Baroque classical. Baroque paintings were part of the Counter-Reformation, right? Um, as you know, Protestantism became a thing about five or 600 years ago, and it shook up the entirety of Western Europe. But then, about 100, 150 years afterwards, Catholicism made a comeback. And this is known as the Baroque period. And Caravaggio's paintings are considered Baroque because he is exploring Catholic themes in his paintings. Um, His paintings are considered classical. Classicism in art is when painters aesthetically looked back to the art of the classical period, which is Greek and Roman. So he is a Baroque classical painter. And that style lasted for a good few hundred years afterwards. But what I want to talk about today is Impressionism, which would have been considered quite a radical art form when it burst into the scene in the 19th century. So first you got to look at kind of the political climate at the time in France, okay? Um... Napoleon had been the leader of France. Napoleon was a pretty hardcore dictator, a nationalist, had a strong sense of French identity and believed that the French were entitled to try and take over the world, and he did, he tried. So the type of art that would have been, that Napoleon would, that, 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 the, that Napoleon society would have wanted would have been classical type artwork, very traditional artwork, traditional painting, um, the neoclassical style. And like I said, classicism is when you look back to Roman and Greek ideas. So Napoleonic, art of the Napoleonic society would have a lot of classical themes, a lot of religious themes, uh, very detailed, straightforward artwork, very skilled painting. And This kind of changed in 1874 when a group of four artists kind of shook shit up. So how art was presented uh, in the 19th century was, it was presented to what's known as the Salon system, okay? A Salon was a, a gallery in Paris and kind of sanctioned art that was sanctioned by society was presented in the salon that's what you did if you had a painting you got into the salon that's what happened so this group called the Impressionists made up of Claude Bonnet Pierre-Auguste Renoir Alfred Sisley and Frederick Basile they said fuck the salon we're going to have our own salon here's an exhibition of some mad shit some mad paintings now, if they were really radical, they'd have included, included a couple of women, but they didn't. Alas. Now, if you want to get an idea visually of what impressionistic painting looks like, 
if you're on your phone or whatever and want to see what it looks like while I'm talking, I would suggest uh, going to Google Images and look up Claude Monet, M-O-N-E-T. And that is, that's that's kind of Impressionism, as it says it on the tin. Um, what was so different about Impressionism to previous styles of painting? Now, it, when, when the lads had this exhibition, it made the traditional art community fucking furious. This was seen as childish painting. It was seen as breaking every rule in the book. It was the beginnings of what we call abstract art. But like with Caravaggio, and like I said, painting styles before were driven aesthetically, but not necessarily aesthetically. They were driven by economics and society. Impressionism was the same. So what kind of characterised Impressionism as opposed to painting before it is that the brush strokes were very thick and messy, right, and quite visible. And Impressionists, they weren't necessarily concerned with painting things as they are, right? They were concerned with painting an impression of what was in front of them. Most importantly, they wanted to understand how light works, okay? Up to that point in painting, up to the late 19th century, not a lot of painters actually left their studio. Not a lot of painters went outside into the actual open air and fucking painted, okay? Um, normally what a painter would do is they'd take a sketchbook outside and maybe sketch trees and hills and then take that back into the studio and kind of half paint from memory, okay? But the Impressionists were the first to really properly go outside and paint an entire painting start to finish in the open air. And this was radical, okay? Um, one of the things that drove this again was technology paints before the impressionists if you were an artist you made your own paints you had a limited selection of pigments which were very expensive you mixed them with oil in your studio and they didn't really leave the studio now a few painters would take paints outside of the studio but what they'd do is they'd get a, a pig's bladder they'd put some of the oil paint in the pig's bladder tie it up and then prick it with a pin but this was very wasteful and messy and not a lot of people liked doing it but with the Impressionists we're talking 1874 the Industrial Revolution had happened and what we saw was the first availability of commercial tubes of paint tin tubes of paint that had never been a thing up until the 1870s. So now all of a sudden you had artists who could leave the house with tubes of fucking oil paint. This was radical. This was revolutionary. Technology, this was like having an iPhone back then. And not only uh, had science allowed for tubes of paint, chemistry had become had gotten fairly far by 1870. And new pigments were emerging, pigments that were created in laboratories. So painters had a much wider range of colours to choose from also. So what the Impressionists would try and do, and you'll see this, uh, the best example of this is there's two paintings, series of paintings by Manet. Uh, Study of Rowen Cathedral and Haystacks. And what these are, are haystacks in particular. It's four paintings of the same haystack at different times of the day. And Monet had tried to use his human eye to accurately paint light as it actually is. And this had never really been done before. If you look at haystacks when it's painted in the morning, it's fucking blue. Because that's that's what light actually is. It's blue. And Monet painted this exact blue light with purple and it's the most realistic depiction of colour that you can get and even today 
cameras cannot portray color exactly as the impressionists were able to get it on a canvas with oil paint. One of the other things that drove impressionist painters to paint the way they did is that photography had just become an emerging technology. And if you look at the neoclassical style of painting from someone like Jacques-Louis David that the impressionists were railing against, you'll notice that it's almost photographic. You know, the painting style is almost, it's perfect. So the impressionists were like, fuck that perfectionism. Why try and be a camera? We need to do what a camera can't. The other thing that would have informed the impressionists was the emerging science of optics. Biologists were starting to become interested in the human eye and to become interested in how the human brain processes colour. Scientists were starting to become interested in the actual light spectrum, the spectrum of light that makes colour. And all of this stuff informed Impressionist painting and it's what made it a modernist movement. And when we say modernism in art of any description, modernism, to give it a bitch basic description, is when the artwork kind of puts faith in scientific discovery and searches for truth using science this is why modernism is mostly a 20th century uh, art is, is most, mostly a 20th century art movement in Ireland our modernist was James Joyce James Joyce wrote Ulysses and he his style of writing was informed by the discoveries of Sigmund Freud and the human mind the unconscious mind Joyce when he wrote and Joyce is considered the greatest modernist Joyce when he wrote was not the words that he was writing were not the words that came out of his character's mouth but they were the words as they formed in the unconscious mind before they came out of the character's mouth and that is pure modernistic right there and the impressionist painters were modernistic in that they were not painting they were not painting something exactly as it is like like a camera would do but rather they were painting how colors are perceived by the human eye and absorbed by the brain and how light actually works you'll see this too in, in another style of painting that happened around the same time as impressionism this painting is called pointillism and if you want to see a pointillist painting, you'll know this painting because it's reproduced loads. It's called A Day in the Park by George Surratt, S-E-U-R-A-T, I think. And pointillism was, and again, an attempt to understand how light and colour works and how it is perceived by the human eye and the brain. Pointillist paintings are made up of thousands and thousands of tiny little individual dots and it is the human eye that joins these dots into the image that we see so again it's impressionism exploring the themes of science and using the advances of science with you know the technology of tube paint to create this new radical artwork and not all Impressionist painters as well were lads. You had incredible female Impressionist painters like Mary Cassatt. And what's interesting about Mary Cassatt's paintings is none, none, of them were, none of them happen outside the house because women weren't really allowed to leave the house. They're paintings of other women looking after children and stuff inside in parlours. And women were written out of women were written out of fucking everything. Women weren't allowed to participate and when they did participate it was written off and forgotten by history. But look up Mary Cassatt's paintings because she's a fucking incredible impressionist painter. But to kind of sum up the, the major contribution that the impressionists did for art and not just art but human understanding is they, they're, they're the first ones to truly truly understand light and colour um, which you didn't really see beforehand e even if you go back to 
you know, look at Caravaggio's paintings a few hundred years previously, like, Caravaggio had established form perfectly, form being shapes and shit, but when you look at, you know, his skin tones and shit, it's clear that he was painting by candlelight, you know, um, and you, you can you can really, see it's, it's not realistic, and Impressionism is when, before Impressionism, if you were to paint human skin, painters before the Impressionists used to paint light and dark. The skin was seen as light and dark. You had a lot of browns and peaches and creams to paint human skin. But after Impressionism, we stopped seeing human skin as light and dark and started to see it instead as warm and cool and when you see impressionistic paintings of people or post-impressionistic paintings you'll see that in 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 human skin tones there's blues and greens and yellows and things that we don't see with the human eye like we 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 don't see these things with the human eye in in every day Our, our our mind kind of will turn, a, you know, a, 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 we'll say a white person I'm talking now, it will turn a white person's skin, our mind will turn it into this generalised pink. But Impressionism is about truly seeing it in the moment as if you had a million eyes and finding the tiny little pinks and yellows and greens and blues and all those colours that actually exist in there. That's what Impressionism does. And wh- when you start, you yourself, try, try and... Next time you're out on a lovely morning looking across at a load of hills, try and f- language in your brain tells you that grass is green and tells you that the sky is blue. So if you were a beginner artist and I, I said to you, here, paint those hills there, you'll paint them green because your mind is telling you to paint them green. But look at Monet's painting of the haystacks when he painted a haystack blue and purple and you're looking at that painting going fuck me that's more realistic than than reality it's because the impressionists were subverting how language tells your brain that things are a certain color your brain tells you that a road is black but a road can be 50 different colors depending on how light hits it Light creates colour. Do you know? And green in the, in the distance is bright blue. It's only our brains and our language that tells us it's green. The Impressionist menaces to subvert that. And it's... It's a ridiculous exercise in mindfulness. That's what I see when I see an Impressionist painting. When I see something like Monet's study of Rowan Cathedral or the Haystacks, I see complete and utter present moment mindfulness and a state of flow where Monet, it, it's like he's not even looking at a haystack. He's simply looking at millions of blocks of colour in, in, a, in a single moment that when combined do actually create this vibrant haystack. But he's not thinking of the haystack in his head. He's just thinking of loads of blocks of colour. So take that on board the next time you're... If you come across an impressionistic painting, take some of these things on board and you're one step closer to appreciating and understanding painting. And I don't think that's fucking complicated. I think it's beautiful. It's beautiful and interesting and fun. And it should never ever be something that should be make someone up fly up their own hole or make someone elitist artist for fucking everyone simple as that and it's not complicated the only people who make it complicated are people who need to benefit from it financially okay i'm going to now answer some questions that you've said to me on the internet um Lorraine asks, Is doing the podcast and the subsequent extra activity interfering with your flow for the second book? Do you know what, Lorraine? 
I think it is a little bit. I'm not sure. Now, I'm also at the moment ridiculously busy. I'm doing a television thing and some other projects as well. So I'm certainly not getting the amount of time that I would like to be sitting down and writing the second book. Now, I am going to Spain for nine days fairly soon to write the fucking second book and to really give myself I'm going to give myself a space but it's just fucking book writing I'm going to go into cafes sit down at my laptop I'm going to drink Spanish port and just write but yeah one thing I'm concerned of is you know when I make this podcast I go into a state of flow like everything you listen to previously in this podcast I didn't really prep that I kind of started off on an an- a rant about otters which reminded me of that violent otter video and through the process of flow that allowed my brain to go from otters to violent human emotions to the Sykes-Picot agreement to feeling that that was too harsh and then that story about paint so that was all delivered in flow that's my the free association of my mind triggering little things now I often I do wonder if that subject matter should be going down into my second book and I spoke with my book commissioner recently and I said to him I'm a little bit concerned that topics that are coming up on the the weekly podcast are topics that should be going into the book or should be triggering a story and what he said to me which was great advice he said so what consider the podcast as research material for the stories to happen so I'm going to try and make myself start doing that there's nothing to say that we'll say today's episode that has to do with impressionism and the Sykes-Picot agreement who says I can't write a short story and these things are the backdrop to that short story you know so I might try and explore a bit of that but I certainly would like more free time on my fucking hands to write that second book because I'm pretty sure I have to have it out for fucking October so I've only got a few months left so I need to work feverishly very soon but that's difficult when I've got so many other counting deadlines. But that's the shitty thing about the job. Everything comes un- comes all at once. And you have to take every opportunity that, that you get. My voice is going now because of this stupid tickly cough. I want to box the throat off myself. Um, Brendan asks, what's the most constructive way to deal with criticism? It depends. It de- Jeez, it depends on how it's coming from Brendan. Um, it depends on whether the whether it's actual criticism or whether the person's been a bit nasty, you know. I th- the key is, I think, Brendan, is to judge how you are reacting to it. Okay. If it's make if if the criticism is making you feel furiously angry, right? If it's make if it, if it's really irritating you, there's a chance that something about the criticism is actually right and unconsciously you know it's right but you're not ready to admit that to yourself so investigate that possibility if the criticism does irritate you makes you angry or keeps you awake or you find yourself replaying or focusing on the criticism too much or feeling angry with the person who delivered the criticism be real honest with yourself be really, really honest and wonder, fuck it, is that is that maybe maybe that criticism is legit and I know that it is, but I'm I my pride won't let me admit it to myself. And allow it in and allow it to possibly be true, because from that comes growth. Okay? So consider that. It depends what it is you're doing. For instance, with the book like the second book I'm writing at the moment the most dangerous criticism that I'm trying to turn away from is the positive criticism 
I've only received a couple of negative things about the book and I flat out disagree with most of them because it's like, no, this is how I wanted to do the book and this critique that you have is how you would have done the book if you wrote it and that's no good to me. So I'm okay with the negative stuff but positive criticism that I've gotten for the book I'm finding quite, I don't want to say harmful but I'm struggling with it at the moment because... People like things about my book that were not my favourite things. And the things that were my favourite things, people aren't noticing. And that's throwing me off a little bit. What I can't allow myself to do as an artist is listen to the things that people liked about book number one and then try and repeat them. Because then I'm not I'm not in flow, then I'm not speaking from my heart. So I have to try and ignore all criticism and only trust in my unconscious flow on my heart. Luckily, I'm fucking 17 years in the game and that's something I'm, I'm quite good at now. I was shit at 10 years ago. I hope that answer helped. Bill asks, How would you recommend someone go about learning about more critical theory? In brackets, cultural Marxism. It seems like an important and useful skill to have. Well, Bill, um, just go on Amazon and buy a basic introducing book to critical theory that covers covers all the different schools of critical theory and all the different philosophers from fucking postmodernism to feminism to whatever the fuck you have. But there's plenty of books out there that cover the lot and use the introductory book to give you a broad stroke armchair knowledge of critical theory and then once you find the ones that you find most interesting buy some original texts and go into it in more detail I'd say that for anything by the way not just critical theory that's what I always do if I've got a new subject that I want to learn find the most basic introductory book learn that until I've got a broad knowledge in my head broad but shallow knowledge in my head and then from there you approach the original texts in more detail never pick up on a like Jesus don't, don't go buying a fucking don't go buying a book that Baudrillard wrote do you know because it'll just put you off or fucking Derrida I did that years ago I bought a book by Jacques Derrida got about a, a paragraph into it and put it down because it was just too much but that goes for fucking anything broad strokes um, usually what I say to myself if I'm trying to understand the new subject and I want to know am I grasping it okay what I say to myself is can I desc- can I describe this new thing that I've learned to somebody right can I describe it to them using only metaphor and if I can describe it to someone using metaphor and they understand it that means I have a sufficiently broad understanding of it. Yart. <coughs> I'm sounding 10% more cynical this week, but it's because I'm pissed off with my own tickly throat because I'm holding back a little cough. So that's about one hour and ten minutes of a podcast there, of a very ranty Bill Burr style podcast episode. Because I have the same t- I have the same echo as his room does as well when he's recording his podcast in my temporary lodgings. So go in peace and enjoy yourselves. Um, I won't be uploading those live episodes I recorded for a while. I'm still kind of on the fence about the live episodes. Do you know? Um, I love them as as something that's uh, uh, because they're interesting, right? But I still can't tell if when I upload a live podcast, does that interfere with your podcast hug? Does it have the same intimacy? Is it a different energy? Because I don't want to be doing that to you. So, you know, you let me know. Let me know on Twitter or Patreon or whatever the fuck what you think. Um, I might start, because I'm going to be... <coughs> fucking cough again. I'm going to have a backlog of these live episodes as I do more and more live podcasts. And maybe I should just release them 
you know, every so often on a Thursday or something and you still get your Wednesday morning podcast hug also. The other thing too, though, is I'm very busy and the podcast takes a lot of time to record. So in the event that some week I'm like, fuck it, I could really do with not recording a podcast this week because I'm up the walls. It is nice to have the um, live ones as backup to have a few of them ready to fucking lash out on a Wednesday. I haven't decided. So you let me know. What do you think? But as always, have a great week. Um, the weather's fucking improving, lads. You know, spring is upon us. So use your mindfulness. Go out and enjoy that. Watch the daffodils coming up. Notice the increase in temperature. Notice the the general sense of... Uh, positivity all around you because winter is disappearing and take that on board and I spoke to you about enjoying winter when it was around and embracing the the decay well now that decay is going and the fruits of that decay is turning into new life so enjoy it and enjoy it mindfully and don't be walking around you know, replaying arguments in your head or focusing on something you're worried about. Give yourself a little space to be in the here and now and share that with nature. And after the end of that, don't be surprised if you're a little bit happier. Do you know what I mean? Go in peace. God bless. Yart. Um, smoke weed every day. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 